We're doing the Old Testament survey, the Old Testament walkthrough, and I'm excited about getting into Samuel because it's a new beginning for the people of Israel that we looked at the history of Israel starting at the beginning with the birth of the nation, the formation of the nation in accordance with God's promises to Abraham and that God sent them a mighty prophet, Moses, to be their deliverer and to be the one who would give them his laws so that they would be able to worship God according to God's truth and God's standards. However, once God had fulfilled all of his good word to the people of Israel and had given them the land through Joshua who completed the work of Moses, then we saw that the people of Israel failed. And that was our study last week in the book of Judges, that the people of Israel had 300, 400 years in order to try to implement the law that God had given them through Moses in order to to live according to the covenant that God entered into the people of Israel with that relationship with them at Mount Sinai, and that generation after generation they failed. Now we saw a measure of God's grace throughout the period of the book of Judges, and that God sent them deliverers who were called judges. And it was fascinating to look into some of the background on the judges and how they'd been appointed in the law during the days of Moses. And they were to be the local governance of the people of Israel. And yet, now we come to 1 Samuel, and God graciously moves his plan forward once again. That's what we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures, is that God will do some amazing, wonderful thing for his people, His people will fail to properly appreciate it and respond in faith, even though he gives them a a period of time to live under this new thing that he's done for them. And then God graciously moves his plan forward, even though the people of Israel have failed. And so it's really the story of God's work in redemption for Israel, but then through Israel to all the nations in spite of Israel. That Israel is not really contributing their part, they're not really doing anything good to make God's plan go forward, but God in his grace and his providence and his sovereignty is moving things forward. And what gets moved forward in the books of First and Second Samuel is the establishment of the kingdom, the mediatorial kingdom. I think that's an important word to throw out here. It's not on your handout, you might want to write it down somewhere mediatorial kingdom is what we're talking about. For as we get into 1 Samuel today in our Sunday school hour as well as in the main service, you'll see that the people of Israel were always a kingdom. It's just that their king was not a human king. Their king was their divine lawgiver, their divine judge, their divine leader in their battle. So they had a king, they just weren't doing a good job of following that king. And so it was God's plan from the beginning to give the people of Israel a human king, a mediatorial king, a human king who would do everything that the divine king wanted to be done among his people. And so that's where we are in the big story of God's word as we come to 1 Samuel. So take a look at your handout. You see the summary of the book of Samuel. I just gave you the long version. The short version is what's written at the top of your page. The first part of the book of Samuel shows us the rise of the monarchy in Israel, focusing on David, the man whose life is the most narrated in all of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, what I want to point out here from the outset is that while these two books, as we have them in our Bible, are called after Samuel, the first main character who shows up in 1 and 2 Samuel, Samuel's not the main focus of these books, but instead David is the main focus of the books. And while David doesn't appear in the narrative until chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we're already having hints of his coming very early in the opening chapters. I want you to open to chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10, you have a very important prophetic poem that is prayed by Hannah. Hannah is introduced to us in chapter 1. She's a woman who is married and she doesn't have any children. And worse than that, she has a rival because her husband has another wife who has children. And so that, of course, is a rivalry that's very bitter for Hannah. And so God gives Hannah a child in chapter 1. And as God does that, She prays and she says in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, 
a prayer that is very much foreshadowing the prayer that Mary is going to make in the New Testament when she becomes the mother of a special son that we celebrate every Sunday and especially during Christmas. But I want to read for you these very important key verses here at the beginning of 1 Samuel, Hannah's prayer. It says this, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. The horn was the symbol of strength. The ox, the animals that had horns, like the rams, their butting power, the power that they had to butt other animals with their horns, that was their strength. And so that's the metaphor here. Her strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength. Notice this last part. This is the climax. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So there's a strong poetic parallelism going on at the end of verse 10 where you've got strength and horn being parallel in these two lines. That's how Hebrew poetry works. It's got poetic parallelism. So strength and horn are basically saying the same thing. And then king, his king, and his anointed are referring to the same person as well. So God's king is the one that God anoints to be his Christ. Christ means anointed one. And so the first kings of Israel are christened by Samuel the prophet. And Hannah's prayer here is is setting all that up. And so this is a wonderful prophetic prayer on the lips of Samuel's mother that is going to give us the preview of what first and second Samuel are really all about. It's about God establishing the strength of his king, exalting the horn of his anointed, and that this is going to be begun through Samuel the prophet. So that's uh, how I wanted you to get the picture here from the very beginning, that even though the king doesn't show up for many chapters, he's talked about there in the opening poem because that's what the author of the book is showing us, that it's really all about God's establishment of his king and his anointed. This is new. The people of Israel did not have a king up until this time period. And this is about 400 years after they came out of Egypt. I want you to realize, though, that the king had already been predicted in the books of Moses. 400 years ago, when Moses was prophesying about their future, he told them that they were going to have a king. And he even gave laws about what the king was supposed to do when God did give Israel a king. So it's not a surprise. God had predicted it, and God had given instruction concerning it, but now is the time. And we'll talk a little bit more about why this is the right time and what God's plan is in the big picture from Judges to Samuel to Kings as we continue on this morning. But let's first take a look at the handout. And there you see we start off with the title and the dates. And the title is from the Hebrew Bible. And in the Hebrew Bible... First and Second Samuel are one book called the Book of Samuel. Interestingly, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek, that's the LXX, the Septuagint. LXX is the abbreviation for the Septuagint because Septuagint means 70 and L is the number for 50 and XX, these are Roman numerals. So that's 70 in Roman numerals. That's how we refer to the Septuagint. When it was translated into the Greek about 300 years before Christ, then the book was divided in half, and it was called First and Second Kingdoms. And then the book of Kings also was divided in half at that time, and was called the books of Third and Fourth Kings. 
So if you're going back and reading in the Septuagint, you don't have 1st and 2nd Samuel or 1st and 2nd Kings. You've got 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kingdoms. And these two books from the Hebrew Bible were broken down into four books just because it was difficult to have scrolls that were long enough to contain books of this size. So they were split for convenience sake because of how hard it is to maintain a large scroll. And so we should really read them as single books. First and second Samuel is really just Samuel. And first and second Kings is really just Kings. I really kind of like the Greek and the Latin names for the books where instead of calling it Samuel, you call it the, the first and second book of kingdoms because that does put the emphasis on the fact that it's not really about Samuel. It's really about the establishment of the monarchy, the first king, Saul being first, David being second. And so I like elements of both. I like how the Hebrew keeps them together, but I like how the Septuagint focuses on the fact that it's about the monarchy and not about the first main character who shows up. So whatever title you want to use for the books, and you'll probably just end up using First and Second Samuel since that's what's printed in our books. But interesting to think about the history of the title there. All right, now I mentioned in the opening that these books focus on David, and I'm going to refer to them as books because that's how they're printed in our Bible, but just keep in the back of your mind that they were composed as one book originally. So you could just talk about the book of First and Second Samuel or the book of Samuel, and that would probably be helpful in some respects, but just out of habit, I'll probably refer to them as separate books. Now, the focus here in the book of Samuel, they don't refer to the singular this time, is on David. And I put in the opening summary that his life is the most narrated in all of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, of course, the second most would probably be Moses. And Moses, you start with his birth in Exodus and you carry through his life all the way to the end of it in Deuteronomy. So you've got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You've got four books that are narrating the life and the deeds of Moses. But not everything that's in those books is about Moses' life. A large portion of those books is Leviticus, which says very little about Moses' life and is really just about the tabernacle and the sacrifices and various laws. So if you put together all the narrative sections about Moses and compare them to all the narrative sections, the stories about David's life that we have, we have more about David's life than we have about Moses' life. But these two are the most important. If you're going to preach biographies from the Old Testament, which I might do someday, you'd have to preach Moses' life and you'd have to preach David's life. Those would be the two that you would want to know best and I would want you to know the best. That's why I would preach it from the pulpit. Maybe someday I will. But right now we're just getting an overview of David this week in 1 Samuel. And then there's going to be a long break between this lesson and our next lesson in the Old Testament survey because summer's coming up. Next Sunday, we've got our music meeting during this time in our adult Sunday school hour, and then we'll be into June already. Can you believe how fast May is going by? And so for the month of June and July, we'll be taking a break from adult Sunday school and children's Sunday school. And then in August, we'll have family Sunday school all together. So we won't get back to our Old Testament survey until we start up again in September. So if you have been falling behind in your reading and you want to get caught up, you've got three and a half months now to get caught up on your Old Testament reading. And interesting that we're splitting here between First and Second Samuel when they really are one book. And that'll work out great because then we can review what we learned in First Samuel when we get back to it in September. And I'm glad that we got to this part because it would be a bummer to end with judges and it's nice to end with something where God is moving the story forward in such a gracious and marvelous way as he does through Samuel, Saul, and David. So David's life is the most narrated in all of Scripture. Important to note him because he is, along with Moses, the one who typifies the life of Jesus Christ the most. David first and Moses second. And so if you want to know about Jesus, you need to know about David, you need to know about Moses, because they were the ones who were given to us as forerunners, uh, those who were going to prefigure the Lord Jesus Christ. So a fascinating study. Now let's then take a look at the date of events. It starts with the birth of Samuel, which is about 1110 B.C., not exactly sure on the date, but we're pretty close there. I'd say 1110 B.C. is very likely for the birth of Samuel. 
Again, this is about 300 years after the death of Moses. And the book then carries forward 140 years to the last words of David. So Samuel would have been like a grandfather to David if they were in the same family. He was about 60 when Saul became king, so maybe he'd be a great-grandfather to David because David is still a generation after Saul. So Samuel's kind of like a great-grandfather to David. And then you go through all those generations, and, and then you get to David, who had a nice long life. So from the birth of Samuel to the death of David is 140 years, and that's what is covered here in the book of Samuel, or the books of First and Second Samuel, as they are divided. Now, Samuel passes on his judging authority around the age of 60. When he's about 60 years old, that's when Saul is appointed as king. And the king then becomes the judge. That was one of the important duties of a king, was to judge the people. And so for his whole adult life, Samuel was a judge. But his judgeship ends when there comes a king. But his prophetic office doesn't end. And he continues on serving as a prophet of the Lord, speaking to the king and speaking to the people, long after Saul is anointed. And in fact, if Saul reigns for 40 years, as we are led to believe by Scripture, then that means that Samuel lived into his 90s and that he was still active as a prophet late in his years. And we see that his death comes, well, we'll get to that in a little bit here. So anyway, that gives you an idea of, of the scope of the time period of the book. And I put a little chart on there so that you could see how God slows things down once again during the book of Samuel, covering less years, more in depth, because this is a very key and pivotal part of God's working with the nation of Israel. It's very similar to what God is doing in the Torah. The Torah, it starts off and you've got the first couple thousand years of human history covered pretty quickly. But then it slows down when you get to Moses. And because Moses is the deliverer, the prophet, the one who is going to show God's people what's happening next. So the lifetime of Moses, the ministry of Moses, gets a large section of scripture. And so here, Samuel, Saul, and David, it slows down here because God is doing a new thing with the people of Israel and God wants us to really focus on this important time period. So you see Joshua and Judges, you put those books together, and that covers about 350 years, and that only gets 45 chapters. So a large period of time covered relatively quickly in these two books. And then you look at Kings, which comes right after Samuel, and you've got 47 chapters in the books of Kings, and that also covers about 350 years. And so you see that before and after Samuel, God covers the history of Israel relatively quickly compared to how many chapters he devotes to the period of these three important people, really Samuel and David, but Saul is key here as well. All right, so as far as the composition, the date of the composition of the book, the book does give us some clues. Now, there, once again, are parts of the book that read like they are from a previous writing, that what the final composer of the book has done is he's drawn from sources that are previous to him and has put them together in the final form that we have it. So sometimes you'll be reading it and you might get the idea that it's very, very old, like during the days of Samuel. There's parts of it that read like it was written perhaps by Samuel. But the whole book as we have it couldn't have been written by Samuel because his death is recorded in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel and then everything that happens after that Samuel wouldn't have written about. And also we have that phrase that we've seen throughout Joshua and Judges to this day. So there's one, two, three, four uses of to this day. And I want you to look at chapter 27, verse 6. So turn from 1 Samuel 2 to chapter 27 and verse 6. Here David is fleeing from Saul, who's trying to kill him, and he leaves and goes to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines are big in the book of Samuel. As we saw them at the end of Judges, they are also key here at the beginning of Samuel. They're the ones who are the major enemy for the people of Israel at this time. And so in 1 Samuel 27, verse 6, we have one of these examples of that phrase, to this day. And it says, So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. 
Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now notice he says the kings of Judah. Now, Saul was a Benjamite, so his kingdom doesn't have anything to do with the kings of Judah. David was the first king of Judah, but it says to the kings of Judah to this day, which seems to indicate that whoever wrote this part of the book and put the rest of it together in the form that we have it now, that he was living during the time of the divided kingdom. Because if he was living during the time of the united kingdom, he wouldn't say the kings of Judah, he'd just say the kings of Israel. But the fact that he refers to the kings of Judah shows that he knows that the kingdom has been divided, which takes place in the days of David's grandson, Rehoboam. And so it's sometime during the divided kingdom, we think, that the book of 1 Samuel was finally put together, or 1 and 2 Samuel, was finally put together in the form that we have it in our Bibles. So we don't know the date of composition, but we know the time period based upon some of these textual clues. And we don't know who the author is. The author is unknown to us. However, one other interesting verse to note here is in 1 Chronicles. So turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles 29. Now the book of Chronicles, 1 and 2 Chronicles, covers the same time period that Samuel and Kings does. And it focuses on the kingdom of David, the Davidic dynasty. And here in 1 Chronicles, we're just coming to the end of David's reign, where Solomon's going to be anointed and David's going to die. And we come to 1 Chronicles 29, verses 29 and 30, for an interesting note here. The very end of the book. Now the acts of King David, from first to last, are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer, and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the chronicles of Gad the seer, with accounts of all his rule and his might, and of the circumstances that came upon him, and upon Israel, and upon all the kingdoms of the countries. So here, the chronicler, whoever he was, we don't know who the the author of Chronicles was either, he refers back to some of the sources that he was using when he wrote his book as being The Chronicles of Samuel, the seer, wouldn't it be interesting if we discovered that someday? Oh, look, we found the Chronicles of Samuel. I don't think that'll ever happen, but it would sure be interesting if we did. And Nathan also left behind Chronicles and Gad. Nathan and Gad were some of the prophets who ministered during the reign of David and were close with David. And so these men, these prophets, all wrote down books. And that's some of what was used to create the book of 1 Chronicles as we have it. So very fascinating how we get some clues into some of the sources of what we have in our Bible. All right, so let's take a look then at the themes and the purpose of the book of Samuel or the book of kingdoms, as it's called in the Septuagint and the Vulgate. The first theme that I want to focus on together is that of the Torah, What I mean by that is a refocusing on the priesthood and the tabernacle. In the book of Judges, there was precious little said about the tabernacle, about Levites, about sacrifices, about any of that worship, that mosaic worship that had been instituted at Mount Sinai. And so you're like wondering, well, where's the tabernacle? What's going on? Why is there nothing about that? Well, that wasn't the focus in Judges, but it comes back into focus here at the beginning of Samuel's book. And so I've given you a list of all the verses, not maybe not all, a lot of the verses that refer to the priests, the priesthood, there in First and Second Samuel. And we haven't really had mention of the priests since we were in Joshua chapter 19 and chapter 20. There's a, a mention briefly of the priests there. And then we haven't had mention of the Ark, except in Judges, there's one verse that mentions that the Ark of the Covenant was at Bethel in Judges chapter 20, verses 27. But other than that, it's been pretty quiet compared to what we see here in Samuel with a lot of references to the priests and and several references to the Ark and whole chapters about the Ark of the Covenant as we looked into from our pulpit sermon last week in chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel. So, The worship of God, according to the law of Moses, once again becomes an important part of the story as we get into these books of the kingdom. 
There's a new worship center that is established early on in the book of Samuel as the ark is taken captive by the Philistines and it's no longer at Shiloh, but then it moves to Kiriath-Jerim in chapter 7 verse 2 of 1 Samuel. And then finally in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David comes and removes it from that new location to its final location in Jerusalem. After David conquers Jerusalem, he brings the ark and the tabernacle there in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So that renewed emphasis on the Torah and in relationship to the priesthood and the tabernacle is something you want to take note of as you read through First and Second Samuel. Then the second theme that is important to put out here is a reemergence also of a focus on the prophets and the word of the Lord. And so I gave you also a list of many places where the prophets are referred to in First and Second Samuel. And I want you to look with me at chapter 2, verse 27. Come back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, where we started off. Now, 1 Samuel 2, 27 refers to a man of God who comes to Eli and delivers a message from the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And he rebukes Eli for not doing a good job of maintaining the standards of the worship of God at the tabernacle because he's not willing to discipline his sons, but allows them to get away with all of the evil that they're doing in their service to the Lord. And so this is similar to how we saw just occasional reference to a man of God when we were reading through Judges. There's one or two places in the book of Judges where a man of God comes and delivers a message to the people. That's kind of what we have here. So there's not a premier prophet. There's not an ongoing national ministry of a prophet. But God will send a man of God, a prophet, to deliver a message from time to time to certain people during this time period. But then you come over to chapter 3, verse 20, and that changes. I'll pick it up in verse 19 where we see that Samuel grew... And the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. When it says he let none of his words fall to the ground, that means that he had the word of the Lord and that he was able to predict the future. He was able to say things that no human being would be able to know because God was revealing things to him. And the things that God was revealing to him were 100% true. It wasn't like half the time Samuel's words come true and half the time they're not true. That's the mark of a false prophet somebody who's just kind of guessing. But the Lord's prophet is right 100% of the time, and so that's what it means when he says, he let none of his words fall to the ground. And then verse 20, and all Israel, so this is a national ministry of a prophet, from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh, by the word of the Lord. So the prophet and the word of the Lord coming into central focus again in these books. This hasn't happened for over 300 years. That since the death of Moses, there has not been a prophet like this. So Samuel is really, you could think of him as like a second Moses. And this is similar to what was predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So keep your marker in 1 Samuel and come back to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 is an important prophetic passage because ultimately it points not just ahead to people like Samuel, but it points ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. And in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb. And he goes on and explains why God speaks through prophets. And he says in verse 18, once again, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And goes on and gives further instruction on how important it is to listen to God's prophet. So Samuel is this prophet like Moses who comes along and is the beginning of the renewal of Israel. During the dark days of the judges, they went through these cycles of sin and rebellion and idolatry that would lead to their oppression by foreign armies. And then they'd cry out to the Lord and God would be merciful and send them a judge. And then all the days of the judge, they'd be secure. And then the judge would die and then they'd go back into that same cycle of idolatry and sin and oppression and all that. 
And it seemed to get worse, that they were in this downward spiral. It wasn't just a circle, a cycle, but it was a downward cycle. And so when we come to the time of Samuel, we need a reformer. We need a reformation among the people of Israel. And Samuel is that reformer who takes Israel back to the Lord. And you can read about that. It's after uh, the ark is restored to the people of Israel and Samuel becomes the judge uh, over Israel. But not just a judge, a prophet like Moses. And so the re-emphasis on the prophet and the word of the Lord is key in the book as well. Then the third theme that you have on your hand out there is the focus on the king. So we've got the tabernacle and the Levitical worship, we've got the prophet and the word of the Lord, and we've got the king. The priest, the prophet, and the king is the focus here of Samuel. And Jesus Christ, of course, is our priest, and he's the prophet, like Moses, and he's the king, he's the anointed one. So you see Christ prefigured in, in all of this renewal of the people of Israel in First Samuel. God's being gracious to the people, he's restoring the priesthood, he's restoring the prophetic office, he's restoring and he's instituting the kingdom, and then that's the point of the book. So the king, he's called three things throughout the book, he's called the anointed, he's called the king, and he's called the prince. Now, we already looked at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, where we saw the anointed and the king in poetic parallelism in Hannah's prayer. One other place where I'd like to focus on the anointed is in chapter 24. So turn to chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. Now, interesting to note that Saul is referred to as the Lord's anointed more than David is throughout the books of Samuel because David constantly refers to Saul as the Lord's anointed in that David has been tempted to strike out against the one who's trying to end his life and David constantly refuses to be an enemy to Saul or to try to take vengeance on Saul because Saul is the Lord's anointed. And so David is always referring to Saul as the Lord's anointed as a reason why he's not going to take vengeance on Saul for trying to kill him. So Saul is called the anointed, the Christ, more than David is, interestingly. So you see an example there in chapter 24, verse 6. David spares Saul's life, as it says in the chapter heading. So David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So it's not just once, it's twice in that verse. And then again, emphasized in verse 10, where David repeats it, and he says, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. Uh, Mashiach would be the Hebrew word here. Christ is the Greek translation. Anointed is the English translation of those Greek and Hebrew terms. So, anointed is a key phrase for the king, as Samuel anoints Saul first, and then Samuel anoints David second. God's prophet anointed the king because God chose the king. The people didn't choose the king. And we'll see that if we have time later this morning when we're preaching on the choice of God for their first king. So he's called the anointed. He's also called the prince. Turn back to chapter 9, verse 16. We'll take a look at one of those examples in 1 Samuel 9, verse 16. This is where Saul is chosen, and Samuel is told by the Lord that Saul is going to be the first king. So it says there in 1 Samuel 9.16, God speaking to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Now, the word prince there, it can also be translated as leader or ruler. And so this gives the idea that God is the ultimate king, and the human king is like a prince or a leader or a ruler. And I think God uses this term to remind the people of Israel that, well, I am the high king, and this human king that I'm appointing, he is underneath my authority. I'm still the one who gets to tell the king what to do, and I can make my will known through my prophets. And so the prophet has authority to tell the king, this is what God wants you to do. And the king is this ruler, he's this prince who has to listen to the high king, the king of Israel in heaven. 
So he's the anointed, God is the one who chooses him. He's the prince, he's the one that is the leader of the people, but he's still underneath God's authority. But it also uses this word king to describe him, as we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, and as is constantly used in chapters 8 and 9, and chapter 12, and chapters 14 through 19. And, and so we, we properly refer to these books as the book of kingdoms, Saul's kingdom and then David's kingdom, and then that leads into all the kings of third and fourth kings, as it's sometimes called. So, those are the first three themes, and then the fourth theme is going to reiterate what I just talked about. If the first three were about prophet, priest, and king, well, we're going to look at Samuel, who embodies the prophet, but who also restores the priesthood, and then we're going to look at Saul and David. So, the biographies... The book of Samuel really focuses on three men, and that's the way it organizes its material. That's the way the outline is going to be structured. First with Samuel, then with Saul, then with David. Now Samuel is mentioned 111 times in the book of 1 Samuel. So how many chapters are there in 1 Samuel? 31, right? Yep, 31. So in 31 chapters, he's mentioned 111 times. That's over three times, like three and a half times a chapter. So you see, he's pretty important in the book. However, Saul is mentioned 249 times in 1 Samuel. So even though it's called the book of Samuel, Saul is mentioned over twice as much as Samuel is in the book. And then David is mentioned 469 times in the book of 1 Samuel. There are not a lot of references to Samuel after his death in 1 Samuel. And Saul, he dies in 1 Samuel, so you don't have a lot of references to him in 2 Samuel. But in 2 Samuel, you do have a lot of references to David. And I misspoke earlier. Let me correct what I said. There's 469 references to David when you put the two books together. In 1 and 2 Samuel together, there's 469 references. So in the first book, Saul and David are mentioned about the same, but then David gets a whole other book where he's the main character. And again, remember, originally it wasn't two books. We should think of it really as one book. And so David becomes the main focus, and Samuel and Saul are just leading up to David. It's really the book of David, if you wanted to give it a proper title after the main character. Now, let's take a look then at Samuel. Samuel finishes what Samson had begun. Sam, Sam. Sam finishes what Sam had started. And Samson was the judge that God had raised up in order to protect the people of Israel, defend the people of Israel against who? The Philistines. So Samson fought against the Philistines. But Samson did a pretty poor job of it. He wasn't a very godly man. He wasn't a very wise man. He wasn't a very good man. And so he did have some victories against the Philistines, but he didn't finish the job. And he's the only judge in the book of Judges who dies in battle. Now, you know, pushing down the pillars of the temple and dying along with the lords of the Philistines. I guess it's an act of war. And so he's the only one who dies fighting against Israel's enemies. The rest of the judges, they win their battles and then they have a long period of judgeship and there's peace among Israel. Well, not so with Samson. Samson's at the, the end of this downward spiral and he's the, probably the worst judge that they have and he doesn't finish the job. And so God raises up Samuel to finish the job that Samson had started and kind of failed at. And you see a lot of similarities between Samson and Samuel and the fact that they both took the Nazarite vow and they both had special births that were recorded for them in Scripture. When I say that Samuel finishes what Samson had begun, well, he doesn't do it all himself, but he gets some help from Saul and from David. The defeat of the Philistines is actually the story of the rest of the book of Samuel, and that it starts with Samuel, but then Saul has to fight against the Philistines, David has to fight against the Philistines, and they're not completely uh, subdued until much later in the book. So take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16. You're still there in 1 Samuel chapter 9? In verse 16 after he talks about how I'm going to send you a man from Benjamin, you shall anoint him to be prince over my people of Israel. Notice what it says right after that. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel's already had some victories against the Philistines, if you read earlier in the book. But then Saul is also going to be used to save my people from the hand of the Philistines. 
as it says there in chapter 9, verse 16. And part of Saul's victory over the Philistines is going to be Jonathan's victories, that Jonathan is one that God is going to use to defeat Philistines, Jonathan being Saul's son, and also David. Before he's put on the run by Saul, he also is involved with victories against the Philistines, most notably on the field against Goliath the Philistine giant, the Philistine champion. David defeats him and leads to a great military victory for the people of Israel on that day. So Samson, Saul, and David together are the ones who then finish off the Philistines and their power over Israel. And the Philistines are mentioned a hundred times in 1 Samuel, but only 24 times in 2 Samuel, and only three times in the book of Kings. So they're, they're very important in 1 Samuel, they're mostly conquered in 2 Samuel, and by the time we get to the book of Kings, they're hardly important at all as far as Israel's wars and battles and, and all of that. And so you can see that progression as you read through 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th kingdoms. Now, we want to contrast 1 Samuel chapter 7 with Judges chapter 2. So turn back to 1 Samuel 7. Samuel judges Israel there. After the ark of God comes back, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, this is where we left off in our sermon last week, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Now we won't take the time to go back and look at Judges chapter 2, but you remember that in the the period of the Judges that was summarized in chapter 2, that the people of Israel served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they forsook the Lord and that's what led to their subjugation. And finally this harsh subjugation that they had underneath the Philistines at the end of this downward spiral. And so here you've got the reversal of that. Now Samuel is reforming the people of Israel. They're getting away from the idolatry. They're serving the Lord only as they were supposed to do under the covenant. So this is not just a minor reformation. This is a huge reformation that is going to have an impact for the next 200 years. The idols will not become a national problem for the people of Israel until you get to 1 Kings chapter 11. During the reign of Saul, during the reign of David, during the reign of Solomon... The idols are not a major problem. And so you've got this long period where the people of Israel are are pretty much focused on worshiping the Lord. And this is rare in Israel's history. And then the idols come back during the time of the kings and that leads to their ultimate destruction under the Assyrian and Babylonian invasion. But Samuel is the reformer who starts this long period of putting away the idols and worshiping the Lord only. And he's very successful with that. And Saul and David continue that on, and and Solomon also continues that on. So, important to recognize that not only does Samuel finish off the Philistines, but he also ends this cycle by getting the Israelites to truly worship the Lord and to not worship idols. That doesn't mean there weren't any idols in Israel, that they were still household idols, they were still places where people might worship idols in secret, but they were no longer the main focus of the community like they were in the judges, that when Gideon pulled down Baal's altar, they wanted to kill him. Because, you know, Baal's altar is what our whole community is built around, and, and now we're going to be in trouble with the gods because you tore down his altar. So idolatry was center in the period of the judges, and now it's not centered during this period of the United Kingdom because of Samuel's work. So Samuel is one of those unsung heroes of the Old Testament that we don't focus a lot on, we don't talk a lot about, but he's really important in God's grace and his work in the nation. A second Moses who prepares the people for the next stage in God's work among them, that of providing them a king. Moses gave them the law, gave them the tabernacle, gave them a foundation, but then Samuel is the one who gives them the kingdom. God doing it through them, of course. Moses and Samuel were just men. Then secondly, here we get to focus on Saul. And Saul becomes the main character from chapters 9 through 15. And the main thing that is important about Saul is that he is the foil to David. That's why I put the definition for the word foil on there. A foil in literature is one that stands in contrast to and emphasizes the distinctive characteristics of another character. So, Saul stands in contrast to David, and by looking at them, you can emphasize the distinctive characteristics of David that are better than Saul. 
that's Saul's purpose. Saul is there to make David look good. And poor Saul. Saul is a tragic character. He's a, he's a sad character. He starts off pretty well and ends really poorly. And that's the story of many tragic and sad people in history. He's mentioned 249 times in 1 Samuel, like I said. And one thing to note about Saul is that he's very successful as a king. That the people ask for a king, God gives the people a king, and he has got God's power and God's strength in order to fight God's battles, and he wins. For 40 years, Saul is undefeated in battle. And finally, he loses a battle at the end of his life that leads to his own death because of God's judgment upon Saul. But because of God's grace to Israel, because they've put away the idols, and they're listening to the word of the Lord through Samuel, God gives them a king, even though he's not a very godly man, and God is with that king for 40 years, giving the people of Israel victory over all of their enemies. And so Saul is to be thanked, even though he made a lot of mistakes, for being a tool of God, to really give peace to the people of Israel, David finishes what Saul starts. But without Saul, David would have had a lot more work to do because there was a lot of enemies to be defeated around Israel. They'd really fallen low, and Saul was the conqueror. God began routing the Philistines and giving Israel victory under Samuel's judgeship for 40 years, and then Saul for 40 years. So by the time David comes on the scene, he's, he's mopping up, he's consolidating, he's establishing Israel as the strongest kingdom there in that whole region. But Saul is one who contrasts with David. For example, Saul kills the priests in chapter 22, whereas David honors and protects the priests throughout his lifetime. Saul disobeys the prophet in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 1 Samuel chapter 15. But David obeys the voice of the prophets. Even when they have to come and rebuke him for his sin with Bathsheba, he still listens to them. He still obeys them and honors them. So the contrast between Saul and David in how they treat the temple and the priests and also the prophets is the key difference between them. David respects God's prophets and respects the tabernacle. Saul sometimes does and sometimes doesn't. And it's that inconsistency that we see with Saul that is his tragic flaw and the reason for his downfall. Pressure reveals true character. People can look good when the pressure's not on, but when the pressure's on, then you get to see what the person's really made of. And that's why God brings us through trials. He wants to, to demonstrate what is really in our hearts. And so if you have a trial in your life and you fail to honor the Lord and, and obey the Lord in that trial, well, God has shown you your weakness so that you might correct it, repent, and grow stronger and, and do what needs to be done in order to change. So God brings trials into our lives for our good. And if you pass, great. You've been strengthened and you can go on and face other trials. All right, so in the time we have left, let's take a look at David. As I said, mentioned 469 times in both books together. He's born around 1041. He's anointed by Samuel in 1029. So what, he'd been like 12 years old when he was anointed by Samuel. He becomes king over Judah in 1011 when he's 30 years old. He becomes king over all Israel seven years later when he's 37 because some of the tribes are following after Saul's son thinking, well, he was the first king. He, his son should be the next king. And so it took time for David to consolidate the whole kingdom and for everyone to see that God had chosen David and not Saul. So that's 1004 BC. Solomon is born about 13 years later in 991 BC. And then Absalom's rebellion is in 976 he has a co-regency shortly at the end of his life with Solomon in the last two years from 973 to 971, and he dies in 971, being about 70 years old at that point. So, these three guys. We'll talk more about David when we do 2 Samuel. And then you have the fifth theme, is that of exaltation and humiliation that God is the one who raises people up and God is the one who brings people down, that he brings down the proud and he exalts the humble. That's a key theme throughout the book of Samuel and it's, it's really David's story 
is that God takes this humble guy and, and exalts him. And when he gets too proud, then God has to humble him. And so this exalting of the humble and the humbling of the ones who are proud, constant throughout the book. It starts with Hannah and her rival Peninnah in the opening chapter. It continues down through the end with David versus Absalom. And, and then finally, it caps it off with David's song of victory in 2 Samuel 22. And it's fun to compare 1 Samuel 2 with 2 Samuel 22. We've got Hannah's song, and then you've got David's song, and they go together. That's it's how the author has bookended all of the narrative here with Hannah's song and David's song, showing that God exalts the humble, and he humbles those who are proud. And then the sixth one, just tying back in once again to the importance of the monarchy, the Davidic covenant, which really doesn't come into clear focus until 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we'll spend some time in 2 Samuel 7 when we get back to our Old Testament survey. So you put all those themes together and you come up with the purpose of the book, simply stated, Yahweh established a human monarchy over his theocratic nation Israel and guaranteed its future in his covenant with David. That's what First and Second Samuel are really all about. God establishing his theocratic nation under a mediatorial king, and the covenant with David that secures that everlasting dynasty. Very briefly, the structure, the outline, as we already mentioned, follows the three men. Samuel, leading for 60 years. Saul, leading for 40 years. David, in chapters 16 through 31, is overlapping with Saul's reign. Saul doesn't die until the end of 1 Samuel. And then 2 Samuel covers the 40 years of David's kingdom, first over Judah and then over all of Israel. So that's the structure, the outline of 1 Samuel, and we'll tie that together with 2 Samuel when we come back to it. Not a lot of interpretive issues, and that's good because we don't have any time for them. The only one is the text. What is the original text? There's more textual issues in 1 Samuel than any other book of the Old Testament. The Hebrew Masoretic text that has come down to us is very different from the Septuagint and also from the Quran. And so there's a lot of discussion among textual scholars as to whether the Septuagint is more reliable or whether or not the Masoretic text is more reliable. And you'll see a lot of footnotes as you read through the ESV where it says, the Hebrew says this, but the Greek says this. And you'll find a lot more of that in 1 Samuel than anywhere else. And if I had time, I'd love to talk about textual critical issues. 1 Samuel 13.1 is an interesting one. You can look that up if you like online, some great resources to answer those questions as well. All right, so we flew through the end there, but we're going to stop and we'll continue this study, not next week, but the first week in September. So use this time to be reading Old Testament and be ready for Second Samuel after a summer vacation. <laughs>